I'm Melanie Ho, and my passion project for the last few years has been writing a book that's just been launched called Beyond Leaning In, Gender, Equity, and What Organizations Are Up Against. It's a business book written as a novel and designed to spark discussion and change about gender equity in the workplace. This podcast will bring you the research that informs the novel. It'll also invite you to listen and join a conversation with early readers, women, men, across generations, as we reflect, discuss, and debate the ideas in the book. I'm joined today by my dear friend and co-host, Carla Hickman. I'm Carla, and being Melanie's dear friend means that I've had a front row seat across the last two years as she has been researching, writing, and thinking about this book and its characters. In fact, they almost feel like old friends for me at this point. And I'm really excited to invite you all into our conversations. One of my favorite things as her friend and an early reader is that I've gotten to ask the questions directly to the author that I know that many of you will likely have as well. So we want you to participate in those conversations and get a behind the scenes. And then also invite others. As Melanie said, we're really excited to have guests on the podcast who can share their reactions and reflections and what stands out to them. I think one of the most powerful things about Beyond Leaning In is that we all bring a different set of experiences to the table and it has sparked lots of great discussion and we hope change. So for today, I want to start, Melanie, with some background. And I think the most obvious place to start is why Beyond Leaning In? What inspired you to get started in this concept and book in the first place? It started back in 2013 when Sheryl Sandberg published Lean In. And I had just been promoted into a senior role at work. I went from managing four people to over 70. It felt like almost overnight. And in that process was doing a lot of reflecting and thinking and reading about the challenges that women in particular face in the workforce and thinking about workforce culture in general. So at first I was incredibly excited about Lean In, that there was this book by a Facebook executive, which meant that it provoked a national conversation about the challenges for women in the workplace that I don't think we had really seen before that. My excitement though quickly turned to disappointment. I love the ideas behind Lean In. I think it is so important that women advocate for themselves, grasp the right opportunities. Sheryl Sandberg's TED Talk about how women need to raise their hands and take their seat at the table. I know so many women who have listened to that, for example, right before they went to ask for a raise or promotion. It's incredibly motivating. At the same time, Sandberg in Lean In is very clear about the fact that leaning in is only one small part of the solution to gender equity. And yet, because her book was so popular and so many folks were talking about it who had never probably really thought as much about gender equity before, suddenly the phrase lean in became a shorthand for the idea that the main problem for women at work, in a lot of folks' minds, the only problem was that we needed to lean in. And I would talk to women in all kinds of organizations and industries who kept hearing from managers and leaders, both men and women, this refrain, this kind of young woman, y'all got to lean in. And it felt like the blame was being put on us, that the lack of gender equity was our fault. Yeah, it was an important moment for me as well, because it was published right as I was graduating from business school. And I had just spent two years with men and women from all sorts of industries all around the globe in this 
focused classroom setting, thinking about highly effective organizations and how to be a great leader. Two months before graduation, the Sandberg book comes out. So it's gifted to nearly every woman in our graduating class. And one of the things I noticed was that it was gifted to the women in our graduating class. And so I think that speaks to this shorthand that it was somehow not only our challenge to face, but also our problem to solve. And I noticed it was not being given to my male colleagues in business school. And though some of them were eager to read it and wanted to do a better job, especially at this important moment when they're sort of going back into the workforce after business school, the urgency felt different. And I started to get nervous. What is the actual lesson that they're taking away from this book? And I think when I was reading beyond leaning in, some of the conversations you and I have had is that there actually are systems within organizations that make it harder for women, even those of us who want to raise our hands and, quote, lean in for the work. So tell us a little bit about what makes it so hard. What do organizations do that make it harder, even for the women who want to be more active? That's exactly right. I think of three main systemic barriers that women face that go well beyond leaning in. And maybe I'll overview them quickly and then we can go into more detail on each of them. The first is that there are barriers that make it harder for women to lean in. The second is that when women do lean in, there are unequal rewards for doing so, or frankly, even penalties. And then finally, there's the way in which telling women that they need to just lean in ignores all of the I'll say, quote unquote, stereotypically feminine characteristics that are important for women more than ever to exhibit and men more than ever to exhibit in 21st century leadership. I almost want to take those in reverse order because that last one also reminds me of business school. We actually had a group of women who were leading organizations within the business school who would go together and we'd talk about what it meant to be a woman in leadership. And I remember that so much of it was how do we better mimic men or the things that have helped men be successful and rise to the top C-suite level. And there was this great conversation with one of our professors who came in and said, this isn't necessarily about male characteristics and women characteristics. It's the blend of qualities and characteristics that people of all genders need in order to be successful. So I think really pushing again on even just assigning male and female to just leadership traits is something worth exploring. So many women have the experience of being in a room full of often primarily men and trying to get your voice in because they're all talking over each other and they're interrupting one another and each individual person is trying to win the conversation. And of course, this isn't every single setting, but the more I would talk to women about their experiences at work, everybody had a story like this of being in a room like that and then being told afterwards that in order to get her voice in there, she needed to learn how to interrupt and speak in a louder voice and stand up if you need to and posture with your body and take up space. And I know so many women who have had that experience and have said, okay, why aren't the men told that maybe they should listen? And maybe this is a, a point to to lean out and to help amplify the voices of others around the table. Well, that gets back to your point about unequal rewards, even when women do lean in. What are some of those that you've seen in your research or as you were speaking with women in preparation for writing the book? One of the ones that stood out to me most was this idea of what's called the prove it again 
versus the bet with phenomenon. And that relates to different standards when men versus women are promoted at work. I'll give you an example of two characters in my book. Their names are Chad and Haley. Imagine Chad and Haley as both two exceptional employees, but they're fairly early in their management careers. Both of them, though, have had a very recent success. Now, let's talk about what the performance evaluation conversation might be for Chad and Haley. Again, very similar profiles. About Haley, the conversation often goes something like, Haley had that recent success. She did a great job, but she's pretty inexperienced. So we'll need to see much more before she gets promoted. That's that prove it again. Now let's look at Chad again, very similar profile, but there the discussion might be something like, Chad, isn't that experienced? Sure, he's fairly new, but he did such a great job on that recent project. Let's bet with him. So in both cases, you see a but, but in Haley's case, the but is a reason why we're not going to promote her. We need her to keep proving it. In Chad's case, the but is the reason why we should, because he has so much potential that overcomes any of the same challenges that Haley's facing. I wonder if those senior leaders are often projecting themselves onto Chad in that example. So they see in him that time they were given a stretch goal or a new promotion. They see something about the way he performs in those meetings that feels stereotypically male to the conversation we were just having. Whereas they can't quite do that same exercise because there just aren't enough women in those senior leadership roles to look at Haley and have that same reaction or response. I love that point because it gets to the fact that there are so many different kinds of bias that happen in the workplace. And one that often isn't discussed is in-group favoritism and how that's different from out-group bias. So the idea of out-group bias is that people have biases often unconscious towards someone that's different from them. In-group favoritism is just as it sounds. It's not that necessarily the managers in this case feel biased against Haley but maybe they see themselves in Chad. And then just the opportunity gap. So that was the first barrier that you mentioned that sometimes organizations themselves just make it harder for women to have the opportunity, which I know I told you we'd go in reverse order. So we've talked about it a little bit already, but explore the opportunity gap. And how does that come up as we read through the novel? The opportunity gap is something that we see very early in folks' careers, as early as interns. And in the novel, I try to give the perspective across multiple points on an organizational ladder. So we have perspectives of interns up to the CEO and the board chair. In the intern case, I introduce readers to three characters, Ethan, Paige, and Jessica. They were all hired as finance interns, presumably for their financial skills and their desires to make a career in that area. But when assignments are given out, Ethan is assigned the task of helping with some complex financial analysis, where Paige and Jessica are assigned the tasks of event planning and helping prepare slides. Now, those aren't necessarily bad activities on their own, but they're not the activities for which they were hired and the activities that would help them advance into the next role in the way that Ethan will. 
And the reason why this opportunity gap can be so pernicious is that it plays out over time. It's not just this one isolated incident where Ethan is getting a completely different experience as Paige and Jessica. It's that now he's gaining more skills that he can put on his resume. He's networking with senior people in a different way that will help him get the next assignment. Those skills will then help him get the next assignment after that and so on. So that might be the moment when Lean In would tell the the female interns to raise their hand, to speak up, to volunteer for the financial analysis task. What are some of the reasons why that is still really challenging? Now, certainly I could imagine as an intern, I'm new to a company, I don't even have a full-time position, the risk of my upsetting a senior manager and pushing back against a task they've assigned me seems monumental. But your research would show it actually happens even through the ranks, middle and senior level female managers still feeling like it's hard to push back on those assignments. Two things come to mind right away. The first is that women actually are often penalized when they do lean in. There's this tightrope, or some call it a Goldilocks dilemma, that women face when it comes to having to be the right exact balance between what are seen as stereotypically feminine traits, like collaboration, and stereotypically masculine traits, like being more assertive. Actually, I remember having a conversation with you when you were in business school about the word agentic versus communal. That's right. That same group of women leaders in business school, our professor talked to us about agentic versus communal traits. And it did bring up things like power posing and all that posturing and taking up physical space in a room. But I found it a really helpful framework to just think about the various types of skills that I would need to demonstrate and practice across my leadership and why it would be easier in some respects for me to succeed as a woman in the workplace because I was ascribed so many of the communal traits more naturally. And that for my female colleagues who the agentic traits, which again are typically more masculine, it would actually be harder for them to be respected, even though those are critical skills, simply because they weren't seen as ones that women should be rewarded for. You and I both have very communal styles. And I remember once talking to a woman who said that she found that every comment she made at work, she had to wrap in bubble wrap so that it would seem nicer and that it would just be received in a more positive way. And I think of that often because that comes more naturally to some both women and men than others. But if it doesn't come naturally to a woman, she pays a penalty for it in a way that a man who does it might just be seen as, oh, he's a little bit abrasive, but he's, there's that but again, but he's so smart or he means so well, or he's such a good contributor. Or he's so busy. So of course he needs to be more direct and talk in those infamous business bullet points and that's acceptable and you can move along. It reminds me of how often in my early career as a manager, I would frame my opinion as a question instead of simply stating what I think we should do or what I believe. I think that's another good example of sort of wrapping things in bubble wrap so it's more palatable to those who might have a different point of view. And that's a big generational divide too that I talk about in the book because one thing that I heard often from women of younger generations is that they'd hear from, say, baby boomer women who worked so hard to get to where they did and had to face so much explicit and implicit bias And who found ways to adapt and ways to adapt that included things like phrase your statements as questions. One of my 
I'll say favorite and also least favorite lines from a movie is from my big fat Greek wedding, where there's a scene where the mom says something like, the man is the head, but the wife is the neck. And I can turn the head wherever I want it to go. And I think for women of previous generations, there's almost this pride of being able to use these secret tactics, like framing things as questions, letting men think something was their idea when it wasn't. And that for our generation, that's just not acceptable. That's right. You know, we've talked a bit about the fact that this is a business book, but it is taught as a novel. And that was a very thoughtful and intentional choice that you've made. So I am an avid reader, but I am no English PhD as you are. So tell us, what is a novel designed to do? Why was that the right way to explore these issues of gender equity? Before I started my corporate career, I got my PhD in English, specializing in American literature at UCLA. And my dissertation was called Useful Fiction. What I was really fascinated by was this idea that novels weren't just art, they weren't just entertainment, but they provide this educational role. I've actually been thinking about this a lot lately because my dissertation looked at the early 20th century, especially the 1920s. And there are so many similarities today as far as a time that there was so much transformation and so many challenges and people were just trying to make sense of their lives. And in the 1920s, book of the month clubs became really important as a way for professionals just to make sense of what was going on with industrialization and everything else historically that was just hard to make sense of. And so I loved this idea of novels that can help us learn and make sense of the world around us. And it was something that I actually didn't realize until I entered the corporate world was more common than I had realized. There are several really interesting business books that are written as novels. You and I talked about the goal. So I, it is also a management style novel. I think if you've taken any supply chain or operations class at undergrad or grad level in business, you have likely been assigned this book. It was written back in 1984 by a gentleman named Ilio Goldratt and also Jeff Cox. And it does teach you about constraints. It teaches you about the operations on a factory floor. But what I remember is the story of the character in the novel taking his son and a group of young boys out on this scouting trip and they get lost. And he uses this novel and characterization as a way to apply business learning. So what you're doing here with Beyond Leaning In also gives us the way to approach what can be complex or emotional issues through this fictionalized company. Exactly. One of the things that worried me most about gender equity and and the gains we still need to make in almost every workplace, what you just mentioned about these are complicated issues. And the tendency so often in workplaces for complex issues is to simplify them as quickly as possible to look for that quick win, that short gain, you know, what's the fastest thing we can do to solve it. And everything that I was seeing in the workplace and hearing from friends in every single industry was that actually we needed the opposite. We needed to take a step back when it came to gender equity and really understand the complexities and all of the interrelated challenges. Now, I was obsessively almost reading dozens of books and white papers and articles and studies about gender at work, but 
I knew that most people who have incredibly busy lives weren't going to pick up the same books. And so I thought, well, how do I make sure that readers are able to access that level of depth of information and research and everything's out there, but do it in a way that will be something you actually want to read at the end of a long day. And so that's where I started to get really excited about the idea of writing beyond leaning in as a novel. I had also at the time started reading more about some of the psychological studies about how novels can help with empathy by allowing you to get into the points of view of characters that are unlike yourselves. And so I thought it would be really interesting to write this book where we went back and forth between male and female perspectives, between perspectives of baby boomers and millennials alike. And I also started learning about how many different companies like Boeing and Lowe's and Nike were actually hiring science fiction writers to help them imagine new possibilities for the future. And it seemed that there are just all of these tools that we can get from art and fiction and bring into professional environments. Yeah, it gave me some distance. So I know speaking with some of our other early readers, because it is designed as a novel and I was immersing myself in this fictional company and these characters, I wanted to just keep reading, right? They're very engaging. I wanted to know what happened next. That's the same emotion I feel when I'm reading any good novel. But it's also bringing things up for me. And so there were times when I had to put the book aside because it forced me to reflect on a situation either where I felt I had been subjected to bias in my own career or now as a manager and leader when I wish I had a do-over. I should have done something differently. So I think no matter where you are in your personal, I hate to use journey, it almost feels overplayed these days, but wherever you are in your personal journey with these issues, whatever type of industry or sector you're in, I think the novel gives you places where you can sort of start and stop and go at your own pace. That's my hope, that a novel can help us process what actually can be difficult emotions. I think one of the number one concerns I often hear about workplace diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings or conversations is that people have gone from one meeting in the day on something else to another meeting to another meeting. And then at two o'clock, now they're in the diversity, equity, inclusion training. And suddenly they're dealing with incredibly complex and highly emotionally charged topics, ones that can make you feel angry or ashamed or uncomfortable in any number of ways. And that's hard to process in a one-hour training in the middle of a busy work day in front of a room of people. That's absolutely right. And it also can just be, it's difficult to know yourself, to be self-aware. And so if I can read Deborah's experience as your corporate executive in this example, or the many other characters I meet and beyond leaning in, it allows me to then start making connections to my own behavior and experiences. It can be difficult to just be reflective. Not everyone has that muscle well-developed. One of my other hopes in using fictional characters was to be able to show the difference between intent versus impact. I think in a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations, the discussion will quickly go to, hey, a group is reading a case study where somebody exhibits some kind of bias, and it becomes a question of that person's motivation. Well, they didn't mean that. They weren't intentionally biased. Well, what actually matters What diversity, equity, and inclusion experts will say isn't the intent. Sure, that's important, but what we actually have to figure out how to solve for is the negative impact. 
In a novel, my hope was to show that there are no villains in this book. All of the characters mean well. They're all actually very concerned with wanting to create a more equitable workplace. They all want their organizations to succeed, but often they end up doing unintentionally the wrong thing. Through a novel, you can actually show that these are good characters and that that's why unconscious biases are so hard to overcome. That is what really stood out to me. I was almost hoping that there would have been one individual who so clearly was the reason that this organization finds itself struggling or why it is not performing to expectation when it comes to promoting gender equity. And what you quickly begin to realize is that it reflects the reality that there are lots of well-intentioned people who are going about very busy lives under high stakes and intense pressure, trying to make good choices, and that these complex issues deserve sort of stepping back and acknowledging that we don't always get it right. There are absolutely systems that we can put in place that make it more likely that we do than we don't, but it isn't something that you can simplify and explain away. I did want to pull back to one other influence. I know in our early chats, you would speak often about Patrick Lencioni, who is another author who's used the novel as a way to engage with business executives on these types of issues. So tell us a little bit about what the Lencioni books bring to you as another inspiration to spark kinds of discussion and change. I, as you know, am such a fan of Patrick Lencioni. I went to his big conference right before the pandemic hit, got really excited to take my selfie with Pat. And I just have really learned a lot from his books. He's got about a dozen of them that are business books written as novels. What really interested me, especially as an English PhD who then entered this strange world called corporate America, was when I started to see how many managers I knew were actually reading his books and found them appealing exactly because they were novels. One male colleague who is sort of the kind of person who would say the article is enough. So you could suggest any management or professional workplace book to him. And he said, I don't have time to read that. Send me the Harvard Business Review summary of it and I'll read that. And I always thought, oh, there's so much nuance that one misses when they just read the article. Well, someone gave him a copy of Patrick Lanchoni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team, and he read it immediately, I think within a few days. And then I gave him a copy of Lanchoni's book, Death by Meeting. And again, he read it right away. And I thought, oh, there's some power here in this idea of folks who wouldn't normally finish a whole book about management getting wrapped up in a story. I also love that my first introduction to his books was actually when I worked in the nonprofit sector. So I was a teacher before I entered the corporate world, and we used it to talk about leadership teams within school districts and the different ways that the busyness of the day could negatively impact our common goals for students. And so I think important to remember that while this is a business book told as a novel, it is certainly inclusive of all forms of business, not just for-profit and private sector companies. Companies, but all the different kinds of organizations, folks who are working in the government and the public sector, big companies, really small groups. That's what I think will be fun about bringing new voices to our chats on this podcast, because there are so many different manifestations of these issues. I think it has been really striking to me how similar women's experiences are across every single type of workplace and every single type of industry, that those challenges are really universal. There's something about that that makes me feel comforted 
that I can share and talk to other people. But it's something about that that really scares me too, that in 2021, we're still seeing this so pervasive across industries and experiences. No, I know. That's exactly how I feel whenever I talk to another woman I haven't spoken to before and realize how exactly her experiences mirror others. It's this moment of feeling a sense of community and a positive related to that, but also just sad and depressed. Well, I know that we don't want to leave it with just a novel that you have said, and the book says itself, that is intended to spark discussion and change. Tell us about those discussions. What do you hope people leave talking about? And it'll be a preview for some of the conversations that we're going to hope to have across the next few episodes. Well, already with our early readers, it's been exciting to see new types of conversations. So for example, I've got a few combinations of husband and wife teams who are reading together and how they're reacting differently to different scenes or managers and their direct reports or women who went to college together and may have taken completely different career paths since then or multi-generational family members, mothers and daughters, sisters, aunts, grandmas. So I think it's going to be really exciting to just get a sense of how these different groups are able to have conversations that they might not have otherwise. And then I think one last question, just give us a quick overview. So Beyond Leaning In, we've said multiple times it's a novel. We've shared a couple of the characters' names. Give us a little taste of the plot. So we're entering into a fictional company. Who are we going to meet and what are they challenged by? Well, we first meet our company's CEO. Her name is Deborah, and she is somebody who is just amazing. She has worked hard across her career. She has just shattered a lot of those glass ceilings. She's known to be somebody who advocates for women at work, along with her co-founder, Jack, and they really see themselves as folks who have done a great job advancing the cause for women. They've won awards. They've been featured in all kinds of magazines as good places to work for women. And yet at the beginning of the book, they're facing a challenge. They've just done a company-wide engagement survey and learned from that that women, especially at the senior levels, are much less engaged than their male employees. And they're also looking at their retention rates and realizing that women are quitting at much higher rates than men, especially as they advance the ladder. And so now they're faced with this, it's almost a mystery. Why is this happening? Because when Deborah and Jack try to ask questions of their younger employees, they get the sense that they're biting their tongues. There's something they're not telling them and they don't understand why. They're realizing there's not just a gender gap, but there's a generational gap. It's really through the experience of Deborah getting a reverse mentor, which is a concept I absolutely love that many companies are starting and employers are starting to adopt. Her reverse mentor is a much younger woman named Cassandra. And Cassandra helps her to start to understand why rising generations of women feel differently about the idea of lean in and what are the new challenges that they're facing, again, that are being discussed behind closed doors, but that Deborah and Jack don't realize are going on. 
I think even from that, I know our early readers were instantly able to think of a situation that they were in in their workplace or a conversation that they had among peers or friends. But I think even from that preview, I hope all of you out there listening are excited to join with us in future episodes as we share more about Beyond Leaning In. I know you've also got some web comics that are going to be coming out across social and on your website across the month. But tell us, what else? What next? Well, first, I'm excited about the different ways of exposing people to the ideas in the book. So as you mentioned, this podcast, the web comics, maybe some short videos. But I'm also thinking about how to take the concepts in Beyond Leaning In to other forms of diversity and identity. Beyond Leaning In, as the title tells you, is very focused on one component of equity, and that's gender gaps. But there are concepts throughout the book. For example, in our next episode, we'll talk about what I call mental autocompletes, which is a way of thinking about unconscious bias that are relevant to all different types of identity, whether that's race or ethnicity or sexuality or or gender identity, geography, socioeconomic class, or more. Now, I don't explore these other forms of diversity in as much depth in Beyond Leaning In, and that's not because they lack importance. It's because I really believe that diversity efforts can fall short whenever diversity ends up being collapsed into one single umbrella. Whenever we do that, that just doesn't give enough voice or enough nuance or context to all of the different barriers that any single group faces or any intersection of identities faces. Yeah, we've been talking to some of the early readers as we've gotten ready for this podcast. And one of the things that I have found really exciting is the people who've enjoyed the book, they want to talk about the concepts, but they also have been helping us to apply that to their identities and other things that they've experienced in the workplace. So we'll get to hear a little bit of that directly from some of our early readers. Yeah. So one thing I'm really excited about is how early readers have said the next step might be helping individuals and even organizations create a type of fanfic. So take any kind of workplace scene that's in the book and then imagine that from different perspectives. How would a character of a different racial or ethnic background or a different geography or a different industry even react to that scene? Would that scene look like for them? We are really excited to share these conversations with all of you, more ways that you can connect with the Beyond Leaning In community, and to hear directly from you what it's sparking for you as you hear these episodes and read the book. So in our next episode, you're going to hear from a husband and wife team. They are both early readers and they'll be discussing the concept of mental autocompletes. And then after that, in future episodes, you'll hear from male readers and female readers who are reacting to the same scene. What did they take from that? What was different? As well as women from across multiple generations and multiple industries. Thank you all for listening. I'm Melanie Ho, author of Beyond Leaning In. Please buy the book on Amazon or through www.beyondleaningin.com where you can contact us and also learn about the broader Beyond Leaning In conversation and community. This podcast is produced by StudioPod and Katie Sunku Wood. Edits were made by Nodalab. Please subscribe, rate, share, and get in touch with your ideas.